ladies up in here tonight. No fighting. We got the refugees No fighting. No fighting. Can I talk to y'all for a minute? Let me talk to y'all for a minute. Just give me a minute of your time, baby. I don't want much. Woo! Let me talk to these motherfuckers. Uh, guess who's Bizak? Still smell a crack in my clothes Don't make me have to relapse on these hoes Take it back out the tax in a roll When I was hugging it Welcome to the Life in Paradise podcast I've been racking my brain trying to think of some creative intro line But everything just sounds too cheesy Coming at you from middle central Tennessee Like an hour south of Nashville From a little cabin That has very very weak internet and I'm okay with that. It's situated on like a 620-something acre farm, an old uh, old farm. The guy who owns it is into restoring old things, including cabins. So people have old cabins that are dilapidated or falling down, and they call him, and they say, hey, come haul this thing off, and you can have it. Or in some cases, uh, he said that he pays for them, depending on the, the shape that they're in. But from the looks of it, he's got about four or five old cabins on the property and mine is the only one that's finished. So it's a funny thing. I was sitting on the porch uh, the morning after I got here, he came by to introduce himself and tell me a little bit about the area. And, um, I didn't know anything about the guy. So he pulls up in his mule or ranger or whatever it was, hops out and he's got a real long draw Tennessee accent. And you know, they, they stretch out their words almost sounds like it's kind of fake, but they're all just good people. That's <laughs> exactly how the guy talked. And so we're talking and he's telling me about restoring old cabins. And I'm thinking this guy, he's a farmer. He's been a farmer his whole life, you know, super uh, respectful, probably inherited the land. And, you know, I'm just kind of making all these assumptions. And then I finally was like, so what do you, what do you do for a living? He goes, well, I'm a physician. <laughs> I almost fell down. So, yeah, I mean, you can't judge a book by its cover. You know, the guy um, was into working with his hands, and um, he said he couldn't get away from the farm. He just loved it so much. So he now he's a doctor three days a week, and he's a farmer seven days a week. So super interesting. I'm uh, I'm hoping the guy takes me around and shows me some of the area. He uh, seems to be a big history buff. Apparently, this was a hot spot uh, during the Civil War, which... Is a hot topic right now. No one's supposed to talk about the Civil War. The only thing we fought about was slavery, and that those who fought for the South, all they cared about was keeping slaves in captivity. Most of that last paragraph was nonsense, but you get the idea. I'll probably broach that topic more in the not-too-distant future, but today ain't the day. So since I got here on Wednesday, what's today, Saturday? Yeah. Since I got here on Wednesday, Thursday, I went into town, learned the lay of the land, and um, had some lunch at a little cafe on the town square, and then went to a little craft beer bar. Uh, everyone here is super friendly. I think I have a new favorite place. They call it like Southern Central Middle Tennessee, I think. I mean, you can't have it too far of a south because Tennessee is so narrow, top to bottom. But this place, there's big rolling hills. Everything is green manicured, well-kept. Everything's relatively affordable. I mean, you know what? I'm just going to say it. It's downright cheap. The property's cheap. For what you get, your money goes a long way. And uh, the one of the people that I talked to the other day was uh, explaining how there's lots of people coming from California looking at property here. And coming from Corpus Christi, 
which property values are pretty low, to Tennessee and recognizing that it's cheap here, like it's, I can't imagine coming from California how much you could get. And everyone always says like, oh, we don't want those liberal scumbags coming here, turning our place liberal. And I don't think that's what's happening. I think there's conservatives in California who are getting fed up with the way things are going, so they're relocating. And um, I don't see any reason why a liberal would move to southern, central, middle Tennessee, especially knowing that it was a hotspot for the Civil War. So I'm going to put this place on my list of possible places to live one day. I mean, it's the middle of July, and the high in the day is like 94, 95 but it's dry. So in the shade, it's totally bearable. At night, it gets chilly. It was like 65 last night. And I had to put on pants and a long sleeve shirt. Like that's, that's the kind of summers we were meant to experience. And I scroll through the weather and I look at Corpus Christi and I just bury my face in my palm. (laughs) It's so hot there. When I was in town here and I would talk to some people they kept complaining about how hot it was. Like, you sure you want to sit outside? It's so hot out there. And I say to them, this is not hot. This is fabulous. This is great. This is low humidity. And in the shade, there's a little bit of a breeze. It feels wonderful. One thing that they have here that uh, I fell in love with is they call it fruit tea. And from what I can figure out, it's a, it's a mixture of like orange juice, pineapple juice, lemon, and iced tea. And it's pretty sweet. It's, um, it could almost be a breakfast juice, but man, it's good. And uh, they, they serve it to you as if it were iced tea. So they just kept coming by giving you refills and refills and refills. And the thing to do here is get a cup to go. When you, when you leave the restaurant, they bring it to go cup so you can take your drink with you and they give you a refill. And I thought it was weird. I looked around at everyone's table and they all had styrofoam cups on them and they're getting up to leave. And then so she's like, here, I brought you some tea to go. And I was like, oh, awesome, thanks. So I brought it home. It didn't make it home, but I put it in my truck and drank it on the way home. It's called fruit tea. Check it out. It's really, really good. Another thing that I haven't gotten yet, but I will, is the Nashville hot chicken. They take fried chicken, and they, like, bathe it in some glorious, fiery cayenne sauce. I've had it twice in Nashville before. And if I venture out today, I'm going to try to find some. One thing I love when I go to a new town is going to the grocery store. I mean, not that it's, it's not as cool going from town to town as it is going to like a foreign country, but I love to go see what they have that's different. And Thursday, I ran to the store, stocked up everything I needed for a while, and uh, I just walked around the meat section looking at different stuff. The biggest thing that I could see that they had different was they had shaved meats, a lot of shaved meat. And I guess people make like shaved beef sandwiches and shaved chicken sandwiches. I didn't buy any because I'm, I'm trying not to spend too much time cooking and cleaning on this trip. So I got a bunch of simple, easy stuff. A bunch of fruit, some yogurt, bagels, and then some uh, like meat and cheese stuff. And then a couple of frozen things for dinner. But yeah, I'm trying to keep it real simple. The only grill they have is like this tiny little Weber charcoal grill, which I'll probably fire it up one or two times, but I'm not going to make it a habit. Another interesting thing here is that Hardly anyone wears a mask. I'm so COVIDed out that I'm not even willing to go look up the numbers and the statistics and the cases and the hospitalizations and the ICU, the death. And I just can't. I just, I have to have a break from that. I will talk about it eventually. I have lots of opinions on it, but I did find it interesting that there's no mask mandate here. 
There's no mask signs on businesses. People are just allowing those who want to wear them to wear them and those who don't, don't. What an interesting concept. And I'd be willing to bet their numbers are not through the roof. There's so much more to it. There's so much more to it than putting a piece of Kleenex over your face. And for the record, I'm not anti-mask. I'm anti-mandate mask. You want to wear a mask, you wear a mask. Oh, no, you know what? I said I'm not getting into it. I'm not getting into it. That's where I stand. And I will just leave it at that for now. I do want to talk a little bit about a theory that I have recently derived. It's I'm not the only one. I'm sure this has been talked about. It's not like some revelation, but it all kind of clicked to me. A few weeks ago, I just had enough of social media, specifically Facebook. I mean, all it is, is just an cesspool of people who throw ideas out there in hopes to generate a discussion or an argument. But we all know that it's very unlikely that people will change their minds. And so I think what we're addicted to, well, I think there's two different types of addictions. There's people that are addicted who interact, and there's people who are addicted who just read and scroll. And I think both of those types of people are filling needs in some way. I think the person who scrolls and reads is there for entertainment. So they find value in seeing some normally drama or humor or something like that. And I'm not I'm not judging anyone because I was guilty of all this too. And I still am probably, you know, but now I'm I'm making a conscious effort to stay away. So you have that type of person who enjoys to scroll and read and just observe. If they weren't getting something from it, they wouldn't do it. So it's entertaining to them. Safe assumption. Then there's the kind of person who makes comments and speaks out and posts things. And those people are the ones who tend to get in debates or arguments or discussions. But they're not for the sake of coming to a common ground. I think people are addicted to the feeling of a little bit of a fight. I mean... Imagine 10 years ago telling someone you stayed up late because you were having a Facebook fight or that you were arguing with a stranger on the internet. I mean, really? We're we're arguing with strangers. These are people that we will never meet. We will never come in contact with them. We'll never look them eye to eye. And if we do, we won't behave the same way that we behave on Facebook. So I deleted Facebook from my phone. I mean, and what's amazing to me is how much more free time I have throughout the day. I still have my account. I might check it once before I go to bed at night, but I'm done posting all the crap. I'm done arguing with people. It just, it gets you nowhere. It gets nothing. I would love to see Facebook go out of business. I really would. I would love to see someone come along and challenge them and produce a better product. It'll happen one day. I mean, every business has its cycle, but I think if someone could produce an app with no filtering, no censorship, And you might have to pay to be on it. So no ads, no filtering, no censorship. What would you pay for something like that? That's what I always ask myself. What would I pay? What I would easily pay $2 a month, $3 a month. And and, and to also know that none of your data was being collected. That's how Facebook makes money is by collecting your data and selling it. So you'd have to figure out, is it worth it? Can Can you charge someone a little enough to get them to use the service and you still profit and not sell the data? So if anybody out there knows how to build apps, I, I have that one patented already. It's, um, it's trademarked and patented and copyrighted, and I'm all lawyered up, so don't, don't try to make it. Okay? Thanks. So yeah, that's my take on the whole Facebook fight thing, is that I think it releases like a little, a little shot of dopamine. You know, you, you sit there and you wait for someone to reply, and you're waiting, and you're stewing, and you're thinking about what you're going to say. And if you could look down at yourself from like a bird's eye view, I don't know. I don't think you'd be too impressed. 
So yeah, I'm just I'm at the conclusion that um, it's an addiction. It's probably not life altering. May raise your blood pressure a little bit, but I think it's an addiction. So no more Facebook on phone for me. Only TikTok. Which I hear the Chinese built TikTok and they're gathering information at an alarming rate. I I think I heard a rumor that they were considering ending TikTok in the U.S. So there's an idea. Someone needs to make an American version of TikTok. You can cut me in on that. The 10%, that's all it takes. Speaking of 10%, there's a congresswoman in Houston named Sheila Jackson Lee. Sheila Jackson Lee is a longtime Democrat. She is the elected representative. I think it's the, I don't know. I don't know what district it is. I don't know the number. I would lie if I said it. But it's a primarily black district. Um, She gets elected every year solely based on the fact that she was there last year. And she's black. So I don't think it's right to elect people based on their skin color. I don't think it's right that they elect her because she's black. Either way, she's a bad person. She has been voted by the staffers of Washington, D.C. as like, the worst boss to ever have to work for. And you can Google this stuff. Don't even, don't trust me. Just go look it up. You'll find pages and pages, like of all the 435 representatives, she is the last, the worst person to work for. She was like, um, she was flying on a plane one time and she demanded that someone relocate out of first class so she could fly up, up front. And I can't remember if she'd bought a ticket or not and didn't show up on time. So they sold her seat. Or didn't even have a ticket purchased, just wanted to fly up front. But yeah, you can look that up too. This is all out there. So anyway, so Shejack has recently introduced a bill to Congress to pay reparations. And I haven't haven't gone through all the details yet. But it would be uh, paying either black people or... But it would involve paying people of color money. Now, I don't know if it's because... Now, I don't know what qualifies you to get this money. It might just be that you have to have black skin... Or it might be that you have to be a descendant of a slave, which will be very, very tough to prove. So Miss Jackson Lee claims that she's been oppressed and she's been a victim of, of racism her whole life. But both of her parents immigrated from Jamaica. She went to Ivy League undergrad and law school. She's been a longtime representative in Congress, and she wants to force people to, to dole out money to other people who have different skin color. I have plenty of uh, thoughts about this, but my, but my main thought is, why, why do we need a law to do this? I mean, if people wanted to give money, they, they can. I think my cousin Harry had a fabulous idea. He wants to start an organization that will allow people who think that we need to pay reparations to do it voluntarily. And he's going to facilitate the exchange of money from people who have it that want to pay reparations to those who would like to receive reparations. It'll be all a crystal clear nonprofit organization. All the bank statements would get published. Everything would be clear. You would see where every single dime went. Then we can let people put their money where their mouth is, and they can decide if reparations should be paid. Because there's people out there who think that reparations should be paid, and they have plenty of money to do it. So let's help them. Let's make that gap. Let's fill the gap, and let's let people put their money where their mouth is. It's the same way that people think that we should pay higher taxes, but they, they pay the bare minimum. Like, I don't understand that. If you think that, that contributing to the government is good and that people should do it and that everyone should pay more, well, why not just pay a little bit more voluntarily? Like, they'll take your money. The U.S. Treasury will never turn down a check unless it bounces. I mean, just think about that. Like, well, we should all pay higher taxes. 
Well, if you just think that the government should have more money, then you just go ahead and pay more taxes. I'm not going to because I think they waste money. I think they're inefficient with their money, and I want to give them less. I want to give them less and hold them more accountable. So that's my stance on that. I mean, I have a lot of opinions about Sheila Jackson Lee, but that's the opinion of the day. I also read about some, which is a company who produces and distributes uh, Latin foods. So, you know, stuff that you could find in your home country of Guatemala whenever you move to Paducah, Kentucky, they got you covered. So a statement came out, the CEO of this company publicly supported Trump. And of course, all the media outlets went nuts just because anything that anything that someone says that's for Trump, it just sets them off. And so Trump posted somewhere on Instagram or something that said, um, I love Goya. This is big sign that he posted, which is so classic Trump, you know, throwing gas in the fire. But I have a theory that the right or the Republicans are missing out on the Hispanic voter. Because if you look at the Hispanic culture or Latino or Mexican or whatever, whatever you want to call it, most of their core values align with the right. So they, they've just been, they hadn't been spoken to. I mean, they're, um, they're into their family. They're hardworking. Most of them are not lazy. And of course, they, they, they take advantage of free systems that we put into place, just like, just like anyone else would. You know, it's the things that you can't blame people for taking advantage of systems. You have to you have to blame the system for being at a place where it can be taken advantage of. It's just like people who are right now, they're getting paid more than they were at their job from all the unemployment that the government's kicking in due to the COVID shutdowns. And so they're staying home and they're not working. Well, you know what? Everyone has a price at which they would sit at home. And it starts very, very low. And some people are willing to sit at home and not work. For little to no money, other people, it takes a little bit more. And then there's some people who take a little bit more. So it's not the, the people to blame. It's, it's the system. So people will often blame Hispanics or the Latino culture to, as to taking advantage of our systems. Well, we put those systems there. So it's our job to police them. Either way, I think that they, there's enough core values there to get them to understand that they, everything that they do aligns with the right. I don't know where uh, conservatism or, or the right missed them, but they got left behind, and I feel like they're, uh, they should be spoken to, and, and they should be brought in to the right side of things as someone who will be represented properly because they're not going to get any reparations. They're not going to get any free money. They don't want it. They just want to work. And yes, I'm generalizing. Yes, of course. There's always outliers. But yeah, I tend to generalize. I'm okay with generalizing most of the time, especially if it's based on your own observations. So if you observe something over and over and over and over again, it's safe to make that generalization. That's what a generalization is nothing more than, than an opportunity that you took note of and you apply it over and over again, or you witnessed it over and over again. So then you can, you can predict the probability of something happening. Speaking of probability, I started playing this game called bust a bit. And the whole concept was shown to me by my cousin, Harry, who on my way up here, I stopped and spent the night with them in Shreveport. And so he was showing me this game. It's a gambling game where let's just say you bet a dollar and there's this little rocket ship 
and the rocket ship takes off and it starts going up and it's going up on an exponential curve. As he goes up on the vertical axis of the graph where he is, is a multiplier basically. So it starts out at one and you can cash out as the rocket ships going up. You can cash out whenever you want to. It starts out at one. So if you cash out at 1.01 and you bet a dollar, you get a dollar and one cent back. The longer you wait, the more likely it is that this rocket ship will explode. And it's completely randomized. It's all run by the blockchain. Um, there's not some computer geeks sitting there, you know, making it explode. Um, it's been checked out. And I, I have faith in the blockchain. That's just me. Until it gets hacked, I trust it. So, man, <laughs> they got me for some money yesterday. I had solid internet. I was playing around with it. And then they got me. They got me. They got me. But it's fun. And I think, you know, it's just something to do and talk about. We're not talking real money, but yeah, there's guys on there who bet um, big money, you know, $10,000 a shot. And I just, who are these people? You know, I think it's people that, because you have to use Bitcoin to play. You can't use dollars. So I think it's people who have made tons of money on Bitcoin. And so they're just using their, you know, their Bitcoin to to gamble with. That's funny, though. If you want to check it out, it's bustabit.com, all one word. And uh, it looks kind of computer geeky and kind of confusing, but you just watch it, play around, and you'll get the um, you'll you'll get the addiction for, for sure. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not addicted yet, but uh, I just I'm glad that they're making me wait like five days before I deposit more money into my account. Yesterday, I wanted to play so bad. I told Harry, Harry, I'm gonna Venmo you, and you uh, you send me some Bitcoin, and then so I can put some Bitcoin in and play a little bit, and then did time. That didn't last long. I think I was out of money in like three hours. But at first, I was like, "Oh, this is so easy. I'm way up." And then, yeah, that didn't didn't work out too well. So I've got to wait for my funds to finish clearing and all that, and then I can I can play again. Uh, between that and Robinhood, man, I'm gonna be flying private. Y'all go see me in a private jet here for too long. Once again, I straight off topic. I have to sometimes go back and look at notes to to make sure I I covered things that I wanted to cover. So going back to the Goya situation, I think it's so odd now that, that we're living in a time where people will, will base their consumer decisions on what a company believes socially or even fiscally. I mean, whatever happened to the days of I handed business money, business hands me a product, we're done with the transaction, and we go on about our ways. Now, it's like required that we agree on a bunch of political things or social movements in order to to make this transaction happen. I don't know if this is a good or a bad thing. I just, I see it causing so much drama. But at the same time, I see the value in knowing where a company stands so you can choose not to give them your money. What I don't like is when other people will make judgment on a consumer for how they choose to spend their money. And And this applies to even like charities or giving money away. Like I don't think no matter how much money you make, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, those guys, no one... Th- no one should tell them what they should do with their money. No one should even say you should give one pen, one penny away. You should. No, no, they shouldn't. Because if we're going to start telling people what they should do with their money, then that trickles all the way down. And now we're we're telling the guy that that picks up aluminum cans on the side of the road that hey, you made eleven dollars today. Yeah, you should give away X amount. So what? What are you going to? We're going to draw some arbitrary line that says, well, if you make below this much, then no, we're 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 not going to tell you what to do with your money. But if you make above this much, then yeah, you should do more. You should do good. You should give. What's that amount? You know, it's all relative. It's all relative. I can sit here all day 
and say what I think professional athletes should do with their money. And you know what? There's, there's someone down the line that I've met that, that sees me and they're like, oh man, this guy's got all this and he's got that. And I mean, I'm nothing. I, I, I mean, my whole point is that it's all relative, you know, in the world of wealth, I don't even exist, but in someone else's eyes, I might appear wealthy and, and it's all relative to your position. And so that's the main reason why, why I don't think people should tell other people how they should spend their money. And I don't think people should make movements to prevent people from spending money on businesses because they disagree socially or, or politically. So I don't know. I, I, I can see the value of knowing what companies feel or what they do. I also don't think that you should take the, the individual or the head of a company and apply their standpoint to the rest of the company. I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, Kale and I disagree on some stuff, and it, that's good. That's what business owners should do. You know, it, it, a constant struggle creates a, a, a good balanced center line. And we're both mature adults. We handle our disagreements like we should, and, and there's give and there's take. We pick and choose our battles. But just because I come out and say something, that's my thought. That's not the thought of Noasis Brewing. Because there's so many other minds that are involved in that. A company is not an individual. A company is made up by a bunch of people. It's an organization that everyone has a different level of power or decision-making. So to hold one company accountable or to, or to accuse them of being a certain way, it's just not fair. And if people want to accuse me for being a certain way, that's perfectly fine. And the things that I come on and I say in this podcast, these are my thoughts. I don't represent anyone but myself. And so if you have a problem with that or someone thinks that I need to change or you want to reach out to me, talk to me. But it has nothing to do with anything I'm involved with. I feel like I, <laughs> I kind of just made a legal disclaimer. My thoughts are solely mine and not proprietary to the Nuasis Brewing Company or Third Coast Beer LLC. Anything I say can and will be used against me in the court of law. Amen. Well, I think that's enough politics for one day. Uh, I think this next segment, what, is this a segment? Are we on the radio? Is this thing on? No, we're not. There's no segments here. It's a podcast. I think I'm going to talk about how to crate train a dog. And the reason I'm going to talk about it is so that when someone asks me, I can just send them to this podcast and tell them to go to the end and listen. Because it, it takes a long time to explain to people. Most of the time, they don't listen. And most of the time, they don't, they don't do it all the way. So I'm going to give the instructions. And Whenever, whenever I talk to people about fixing things with their dogs or changing things or whatever, I give them the most efficient way to do things. And if they don't agree with the methods or they don't want to do it that way, that is perfectly fine. I realize that there's different dogs, there's different owners, people have different time constraints, how much time they're willing to spend with their dog. But I, I give the way that is the most effective. And then if there's a backup you know, method that's a little bit less effective and a lot easier, then I'll give them that too. Crate training. This, this can be anywhere from a, a little puppy to a full-grown dog. Same method. It works. It works no problem. The value of having a dog that will go into a crate is that even, even if you don't plan on using it their whole life, it's handy to have. It's handy to have a little place that they, they can be comfortable. It's their spot. If you need to travel, you can put them in there. You know they're not going to go nuts. And then from little puppies, it keeps them out of trouble. Uh, when my puppies, I don't, um, I don't let them loose. I don't let them roam the house until they're older. I mean, six, seven, eight months, once I can be sure that they're not going to get into things. So my rule is unless you're giving 100% attention to the puppy, he's either in his crate or he's in a little exercise pen. And yeah, I mean, I'll take him out 
five to ten times a day. Play with him. Play with him. Play with him. Wear him out. He falls asleep. He goes back in there. So here's how you do it. Day one, you have the crate on the ground. The door's open. The puppy's there. You have some food. You show the puppy the food. You kind of lure him into the crate, and you drop the food on the ground, and he gets it. You leave the door open. You call him, come on, puppy, puppy, and he comes running out. You give him another treat for coming out. And I, and I say treat, but I'm talking about um, hot dog weenies or lunch meat, something that's, that's chewed up and consumed quickly. You don't want them to sit there and go crunch, 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 and then something sparkles, and then they, they lose all interest. So and you also you have to use your own, your own timing. The process that I'm going to give you, it, it can go as fast as you know three, three or four days for a dog that's super food motivated and, and willing to comply, or this can be a five-week process. You know, there's absolutely no time timelines. You just have to build on the, the items that come before. So day one, you lure the dog in there, you drop the food, you lure the dog out. Back and forth, back and forth, 10 times, you know. And, and you just get them comfortable going in the crate, coming out of the crate. And you're, you're showing them that, hey, I'm not going to just lock you in there right away. So once you have them kind of looking for the food to be there, they'll start offering to go in on their own. And then you can just throw a piece of food in there. And then they'll run in and then run out. You don't actually have to lure them in there. You just pitch it in there. They run in to get it. They come running out to get another piece. Once you have them starting to just go in there without you having to throw the food, then that's when you start working on closing the door. So you, the dog runs in there. You give them the food. So now they're expecting the food to be in there. So the dog just runs in there, and then you hand them the food. The food doesn't go in first. Now the dog goes in first. You hand them food. You close the door for 1,001. Then you open the door. You give them a piece of food. You bring them out of the kennel, and you repeat that sequence. You get them a little bit jazzed up. You walk over to the crate. They'll run in there on their own. You give them the food. Close the door. 1,001, 1,002. Open the door. Dog comes out. So throughout this, the next phase, you're just increasing the time that that door is closed before you let the puppy out. And once you have them in there for 5, 10, 15 seconds, you can fire. So, so the dog runs in there turns around and waits and you're sitting there you haven't given the food yet and once they start to wait then you build on that so once you have the dog running in there you're closing the door you're waiting five or ten seconds you're opening the door you're giving them food and then you're repeating that sequence now you can close the door and leave them in there for 10 minutes or so the only way you're going to let them out is if they're not whining or crying so it may be two hours you know for the first session if if you can get them out before they start crying that'd be best but you definitely do not want to open the door when they're crying because that teaches them, hey, if you cry, I'll open the door. And people will often say, well, if they're, if they're crying to go potty, how do I know? That's the thing is that you can't. Well, over time, you'll learn it's a different sound of cry, but you have to pay close attention. But that's the thing is that you're teaching them how to hold it. You're teaching them that just because you have to go doesn't mean I'm going to let you out. And... Uh, you can't do that from too young of an age. Their bladders just aren't developed enough to hold it. So you have to manage that with the food timing and the drink timing. You know, with little puppies, you know, I cut them off food and water, no food and water after 7 p.m. And, you know, they're in their crate for the night at 10, 11, 12. So they're completely empty. So little puppies, I won't let them go more than three, four hours without taking them out. By the time they hit 10 or 12 weeks, I kind of expect them to go eight hours. So I'll set my alarm for, for little puppies and I'll wake up. You go, you walk in the room. If they're whining, you're standing there, you're looking at them and don't open the kennel door until they stop. And it may be 30 minutes. And, you know, like I said, 
This is the most, this is the fastest way to create train a dog. It may not be the way that fits your lifestyle, but this is the fastest way to do it. So you walk in there in the middle of the night, you wait till the dog stops whining, you open the door, you pick the dog up, you carry the dog outside, you set the dog down, you wait for it to potty, you know, give it a few seconds, a few minutes, whatever. Once you're satisfied that it's not going to, you scoop it back up. You carry it back to the room. You place it back in its crate. You're not, you're not playing the kennel game. You're not trying to need to go in there. We're just, this is all business. We're all going back to bed. No lights get turned on. We don't play with the dog. We don't, we don't do anything fun. So that's the, that's the over-the-night routine. Another thing is teaching them not to, to run out of the crate. As I'm doing the game of getting the puppy to run in, run out, run in, run out, then I start closing the door. When I open the door, I don't let the puppy just rush out. So I'll open it just like three or four inches, and then I'll slam it back closed. And the dog will move its face. They they don't allow themselves to get hit. And I say slam it. I mean just kind of fling it back towards the dog, and they'll jump back. Or if they don't, they'll get bumped in the nose, and then the next time they'll jump back. And so then every time I open the kennel door, I open it for a, a second or two, and then I'll slam it closed. And then three or four seconds and then slam it closed and then build duration on that. Then five or six seconds, it'll be open. The dog will be inside. If he starts to come forward, I slam it closed. I start the clock over again. Once the dog is just sitting there waiting for, for me to let him out, then I'll, then I'll start letting him out. Eventually the dog starts to wait and then you, I use their name to release them, Gypsy, and then she'll come running out and then that's it. The crate, crate chaining is done. So the, the key elements are getting the dog going in and out, getting the dog comfortable with the door being closed and you right there, getting the dog being comfortable with you out of the room and the door closed and teaching the dog not to run in and out. Another thing people fail to do is if they put their crate in a different room than where they live. So the dog's kind of confined to a laundry room or garage or whatever the crate is. They, they don't get the dog conditioned to them being in the room and the dog being in the crate. So every time they come through that door, they go straight and they let the dog out. Well, now what happens is the dog expects to be let out every time you come through that door. So it's going to start going through its whining and tail thumping and and getting all worked up because it's expecting you to let it out. So I make it a point to walk into the room, act like I'm doing something, walk back out, slap on the top of the kennel, walk back out. And yeah, the little puppies, they start going nuts. It gets them all worked up. But eventually they learn that just because this dude's coming in here and he's doing stuff does not mean I'm going to get let out. And then they quit. They quit trying. They quit worrying about it. It's all about patterns. Dogs, dogs are constantly in a state of trying to figure out what we're going to do next. Because after enough times of you doing something and then doing something with a dog, they pick up on that. They just, they just pattern. That's what they do. And this goes back to, uh, I think the last episode, I mentioned that dogs are not babies, nor are they fur babies. And to treat dogs how they want to be treated. And I, I think of an example, like if you were captured by some aliens and they took you to their planet and they put you in a little cage and they let you out and they're screaming at you and it's some language that you don't, you don't know. You don't know what it is. It's clear to you that they're talking to you. They're looking at you. They're making eye contact. But you have no idea what they're saying. So you have to start making inferences based on their behavior. So that's what it's like from a dog's perspective. They're in our world. We don't speak the same language. So it's our job to figure out how to best communicate with the dog. And that's by doing things like, you know, using our body postures to control the dog's movements or where they go or teach them what's acceptable or what's not okay. I think it's, a, it's an integral part of, of training dogs is to know how they think 
and then act like them. And I don't mean like act like a dog, like crawl around on your hands and knees, just making it clear to them. Like, I don't know how else to explain it. I mean, I let my dogs lick my plate when I'm done eating. And so Gypsy is real pushy. She'll fight her way to the front. She'll lick, she'll scare everyone off if, if I don't stop her. And I just, I motion towards her a little bit and I go, no. And she backs up and she, she gets it. She understands that when I make eye contact with her and I move towards her and I have something valuable that she needs to back up and she gets it. And if any of that stuff doesn't make sense, the whole like, it's our job to communicate with dogs, contact me. Let me know. If you have an issue, I'll be glad to help you out. I'll make it quick. If it's a complicated issue, more than likely we'll do it over the phone because I hate typing out long stuff. But I hope that it, I covered enough of the crate training to, to make it make sense. Uh, consistency. You just have to be consistent. You got to do the same thing over and over and over again. Dogs will figure it out. I guarantee you. They figure it out when we're not even trying. We go get the leash. They run to the door. We never taught them that. They will figure it out. Be consistent. Whatever you do, if you do it over and over and over again, dogs will figure it out. Okay. I don't know what kind of intro I want to do. Like I like the little, you know, little happy song intro. Like here's my podcast. I don't know. I want to do something. I have no internet, so I'm probably going to edit this. I'm going to drive to town. I'm going to go check out a little brewery, 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 a little brewery called Bad Idea Brewing Company. It's uh, Columbia's first craft brewery. I think they're, I think it's like a year and a half old, something like that. So it looked like they had some pretty good beers. So I'm going to go there and upload this thing, and I don't know what the intro and outro situation is going to be like. I also realized last time on my sign-off, I forgot what like my little tagline was when I signed off. Uh, so I go, but it, but it, but it, that's all, folks. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, Life in Paradise podcast. Thanks for listening. Keep it tranquilo. Trick. I'm just your average hood cat with dreams of getting rich. My crib big like a football field. You might mess around and think I sign a football deal. I take 15 minutes to drop a track. Yeah, I take but you don't hear me. I make them bounce all across the globe. I'm a pimp, I got your girl taking off the clothes. But you don't hear me. A franchise like a Houston Rocket. Every eight months is when I usually drop it. But you don't hear me. I got the streets on lock. I like my beats with knock. You know my state. Player. Now who they want?